Our scripture reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 18, page 1373 in the Pew Bible, 1373, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, he by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the, of the assembly. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, here, I, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he has been made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. It is our privilege to consider the Word of God this evening as summarized by the Heidelberg Catechism. And I invite you to turn to Lord's Day 14 on page 878. Lord's Day 14, top left-hand column of, on page 878. We're considering the Apostles' Creed as a summary of the things that is necessary for us to believe. And come now to question and answer 35 and 36, which read, What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? 
that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Beloved of the Lord, we come now to consider that article of our Christian faith, which is referred to as the virgin birth. It is one of the most astonishing and wonderful miracles of human history, the incarnation of the Son of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in one place, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. And again in another place he writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. The Apostle Creed summarizes this in two short lines. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. One word could sum it all up. The word incarnation. That's not a word that we use a lot, but I think it's a word that is easy to understand. It's uh, similar to words, a word that even some little children understand. Uh, some time ago, one of my grandsons, who was about kindergarten age, showed me his dinosaur book and said, Grandpa, that dinosaur is a carnivore. And I was a little taken aback that uh, a child that young knew the word carnivore. Uh, I think most of the children here know what a carnivorous dinosaur is. It's one that eats flesh because the word uh, uh, carne is uh, the word flesh is part of that word. Carnivorous is flesh eating. Well, incarnation has that same word in it. Only instead of flesh eating, it means putting on flesh incarnation, to put on flesh, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who has always been God, and as God, pure spirit, having no flesh, became a human being. In the words of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. An amazing miracle, a miracle that uh, almost defies belief. Uh, it's, uh, it's something which the world scoffs at. And we might ask, you know, why should we believe this? This, this idea is indeed something that is unlike anything we know. It defies our ability to explain how it could happen. The scriptures affirm that it did happen, but how it happened, we, we don't know, other than the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary in such a way that she conceived and, and gave birth to a son who is fully human and fully divine. Why should you believe that? Well, 
The main reason we believe that is because it is the consistent witness of Scripture. The Bible says it over and over again. It's hinted at in the very first redemptive promise in the Bible, where it speaks about how, where God says, I will do something, and the seed of the woman will do something, and the the something that is going to be done is our salvation. God's doing it, and the seed of the woman is doing it. Now, it doesn't say there that God is going to become the seed of the woman, but it does indicate that there's going to be some kind of unity of action between God who puts enmity and the seed of the woman who bruises. Uh, they're going to be working together somehow. And so you have the, the beginning of the intimation that uh, God himself is going to come and enter into human history as one of us to accomplish our salvation. But what is hinted at is also explicitly prophesied. For example, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, uh, a virgin will give birth to Emmanuel. And uh, that Emmanuel word Emmanuel means God with us, a virgin. A young woman who, without a husband, is going to give birth to a child, and that child is going to be Emmanuel. And then two chapters later, in Isaiah 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are divine names. And yet it says, unto us a son is born, a child is given, and this child has divine names. He is the Emmanuel of two chapters earlier in Isaiah 7:14. Matthew's Gospel gives us a detailed account of the virgin birth from Matthew's perspective. Luke's gospel gives us a detailed account of the virgin birth from Mary's perspective. John's gospel uh, speaks of it in different terms, but all four gospels make clear that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Son of God. Some, uh, it's uh, also throughout the rest of the New Testament, uh, Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped, selfishly held on to, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, and the servant was able to die. Well, you have to have a body in order to, to die. So uh, here's one who is equal with God, who humbles himself by becoming human and even suffering death, or you have the passage that uh, is before us uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Because he came to save human beings, uh, he had to become one with us. And as a result, he calls us his brothers. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is one of us, a fellow human being, eternal, second person of the Trinity. God became a human being without ceasing to be God, so that in one person there are two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Jesus taught the same thing when he said, for example, how can David's son be David's Lord? He stumped the Pharisees on that one because uh, in one of the Psalms, David refers to his descendant as his Lord. 
Well, God is his Lord, and uh, but how can God be his descendant? Well, only because God has become a man. Or again, Jesus said to uh, his opponents, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not only claiming prior existence, but claiming prior existence by the name that God used for himself when he spoke to Noah, to Moses, out of the burning bush. Tell them, I am has sent you. I am who I am is God's name that describes his self-existent character. And Jesus uses that name to name himself and to say that he existed before Abraham. And so, again and again, you have throughout the scriptures this idea that God is going to come into the world, become one of us, so that he can die for us. Now, of course, not everyone does believe that. Even in Jesus' day, there were those who uh, thought, he's just one of us, he's, he's not divine. Uh, when he came to his hometown, they said, is this not Joseph's son? They uh, thought he was putting on airs by pretending to be greater than he ought to be. Uh, in the first uh, centuries after Christ, there were uh, Christian heretics known as the Gnostics who denied that God came in the flesh, and it was Gnosticism in particular that John in his epistles was concerned about when he says that if they deny that uh, he has come in the flesh, they are of the Antichrist. Uh, in the 18th century, the age of enlightenment, the uh, idea that uh, reason is uh, the only reliable source of information, uh, reason over revelation, revelation is uh, not reliable. It's just uh, opinions, and uh, we have to base our thinking on rationality and reason and so forth. Well, when reason took primacy over revelation, then supernatural was thrown out because the supernatural was considered uh, unnatural, that uh, we, we don't see the supernatural, therefore it doesn't exist, and uh, we have the fruit of that still in many liberal churches that look to Jesus as someone to inspire them to live uh, upright lives. They look to him as a teacher, but they deny uh, his blood atonement as paying for our sins. Well, you have to ask yourself, are you going to side with the world and say, oh, this is just too fantastic to, to be believed. I would ask you, you know, it's not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable to believe that a God who can create the universe out of nothing and can create all the complexity that we see both inside ourselves and outside of us in the world and and the heavens declaring his glory and the firmament his power. Is it unreasonable to assume that such a God couldn't do this? Is it, is it something that is impossible for a God who creates out of nothing to become one of us? I don't think that that's unreasonable to uh, believe about a God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. If, if your God is 
simply a, a force of nature, part of nature, part of the creation, and subject to its laws, well, then yes, uh, such a God probably couldn't uh, transform himself into something else. But if God is indeed the one who stands outside of the creation, and is above the creation, who existed prior to it and brought it all into existence by his word of power, then it is not unreasonable to assume that he could also become one of us. He created us, and he can uh, become one of us. You have to ask yourself, do you believe that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on human flesh and was made man and became like us in every way except for sin? Do you believe that the power of the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and enabled her to conceive a child in her womb and bring forth the Son of God. That's the faith that this church confesses. That's the faith that historic Christianity confesses. And uh, uh, the Bible makes clear, First uh, John 2, verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Uh, this is one of the watershed doctrines by which we recognize one another as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Catechism, in addition to setting this before us, asks a powerful question. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? Well, the first answer is, he is our mediator. He is our mediator. A mediator is someone who goes between, who, so, who brings two parties together. And that's not hard to understand. Uh, he can bring God to man and man to God because he is both God and man. He can relate to us because he's one of us. He understands God perfectly because he is God. And so he can Tell us all about God, knowing the mind of God better than anyone else. Since he, he knows everything about God, he can explain God to us. And he can also, because he's one of us, he can represent us before God. He can be one of us and uh, take our place before God. He is our mediator. Secondly, it says that he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Now, there is something in that phrase that we call an ellipse. An ellipse is something that you skip over. You know, if uh, A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And if you uh, mention uh, only A and C and leave out B, then you have an ellipse. And uh, you can recognize that, I think, when you ask yourself, does the perfect innocence and holiness of Jesus, does his innocence and holiness remove your sin? Just being innocent, just being holy, does that remove your sin? No, it doesn't remove your sin. It qualifies him to offer a perfect sacrifice. That removes your sin. Now, why does the author skip over that part and simply go with the qualifier and, and the result and uh, leaves out the, the in-between part about the fact that his innocence and holiness uh, enables him to offer a, a perfect sacrifice? 
Well, it's because he's already mentioned it. He's mentioned it earlier when in Lord's Day 6, he said, why does he have to be human? Well, so he can represent us. And, and uh, why does he have to be righteous? Well, so that he can offer a perfect sacrifice. Uh, it's already been mentioned. And it will be mentioned again in the Lord's Supper section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so to uh, try to keep things short, he, he uh, leaves that out there. So I just don't, I don't want you to think that uh, this is uh, discounting the need for the sacrifice. Uh, it's simply assuming that in the context, you already know that, and uh, is pointing out that this uh, innocence and perfect righteousness is what qualifies Jesus to be our Savior uh, and to offer a perfect sacrifice for us. You know, Moses taught the Israelites that when they were to come to the temple with an animal, uh, for example, a lamb, it had to be a year-old lamb without spot or blemish. It had to be perfect. Well, if you know anything about uh, raising uh, lambs or or goats, which were also used in sacrifice, uh, you may know that when animals are born, they aren't always born perfect. They're often, or not often, but they are sometimes born with uh, birth defects, uh, abnormalities that would, uh, under Mosaic law, disqualify them. And also, the first year of life for an animal is uh, precarious. Uh, they could be injured, damaged, they could become sick, and so forth, so that uh, when they are a year old, they're damaged goods. If a, a raiser of sheep or goats has an animal that is a year old and is in perfect health and perfect fitness, he has a very good animal. Uh, I heard a talk one time uh, from a person who uh, had raised goats, and he said that uh, the year-old uh, goat without any defects, without any problems, is, is the most valuable animal in his flock. And that's what God says, I want. <laughs> I want the one that's perfect. I want the one that's most valuable, that's, that, that's your best. You bring that to the temple. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the best. He's the perfect one. He's the one who is, doesn't have to offer a sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people the way the Levitical priesthood uh, had to, uh, but he can offer himself once for all uh, because of his perfect innocence and righteousness. Now, I have one, one little gripe about uh, this Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, and that is that the... Uh, the authors have uh, focused on this one aspect of the Incarnation as benefiting us. But as you may have heard when I read from Hebrews chapter 2, there are other benefits as well, not least of which is the fact that because Jesus was made like us and tempted in every way we, in which we are tempted, he is uh, able to uh, help those who are being tempted. Uh, it's often the case that uh, people believe that nobody, nobody understands what I'm going through. Early in my ministry, I had a, a parishioner in the church I served in Florida who uh, had 
very bad rheumatoid arthritis. And most of his days, he had a great deal of pain. And one day I was visiting him, and he was in pain, and he was feeling pretty grouchy about it. And uh, he took it out on me. (laughs) He said, uh, you can't be an effective pastor because you have no idea what I'm going through. Well, I I didn't have an an answer for him right away, but over the course of time, within a few weeks, I I did have an answer when he was in a better mood, and he appreciated the answer, Uh, and that is that as his pastor, it wasn't my calling to experience everything that he had experienced so that I could then effectively minister to him. As his pastor, it was my duty to point him to someone who did understand everything he was going through and was being tempted, had been tempted in every way that he's tempted and suffered in ways which even he hadn't yet experienced. Who knows all about suffering, knows all about pain, knows all about grief, and knows all about temptation. Uh, No pastor is ever going to be able to know everything that people in his congregation are going through, even if he has a congregation of ten people, that's still nine people too many, ten people too many, to be able to relate to all of them perfectly in everything. Nobody can do that. We can't do that. Pastor can't do that for you. Nobody can do that for you, except Jesus. Because of the Incarnation, because He came to us and became one of us because he lived on this earth and suffered, suffered all his life under the curse of God upon this earth because of sin and uh, suffered the wrath of God and especially on the cross. He understands. There's an old uh, spiritual, uh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Jesus does know. And he knows because of the incarnation, because he has been one of us. And you can go to him and know that he understands and will help you. And if you're struggling with temptation, he knows about that temptation because he experienced it also. And by his grace and strength, you can indeed find help in your time of need from him. He indeed is a perfect Savior because he has become one of us. It's sometimes asked, is it necessary to believe in the virgin birth in order to be saved? And the answer is a, uh, is a qualified yes, it is necessary, but necessary in a certain way. And that is, it may be possible for someone to be unacquainted with all that the Scripture teaches about the Incarnation uh, and yet be saved. I think that was probably the case for the thief on the cross. He probably did not know about uh, Joseph and Mary and what had happened to them and and that whole story. Uh, Not many people did understand at that time. Most people assumed that Jesus was simply the son of Joseph and Mary, not of uh, God and Mary. And therefore, I doubt that he understood it. But The Jesus who saves is a Jesus who is both God and man. And only when we put our faith 
in a Jesus who is both God and man, can we have assurance that our sins are forgiven. Now, the thief on the cross, we're told, and if you compare rather uh, accounts, various gospel accounts, first uh, he began to deride, they both began to deride Jesus, joined in uh, mocking Jesus, but then the one thief had a change of heart. He, he saw something. He saw something different in Jesus. He saw something so different in Jesus that he said to Jesus, uh, well, first of all, he rebuked the other uh, thief for, for mocking Jesus uh, and declared Jesus to be innocent of any crime. And then he asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, imagine imagine uh, you and a group of people are being executed, you know. A summary execution. You're all standing before a firing squad, ready for the waiting for the uh, the order to be given for you all to be shot. And you turn to one of your fellow prisoners who's going to die with you, and you say, "After I'm dead, will you take care of me?" You wouldn't do that. Uh, you'd look at the people around you, and you realize we're all goners. We're all going to be dead in a minute, and. And none of us are going to be able to help anybody else after we're dead, because we're going to be dead. But this thief, he did that very thing. He said, after we're dead, please take care of me. Which means he recognized that Jesus was more than just a man like himself. He believed that, that Jesus was a king and had a kingdom. And that, that God was with him in a special and powerful way. If he had been told of the Incarnation, I think he would have readily accepted it. And so, yes, you need to believe in Jesus as the God-man. And anyone who uh, hears of the virgin birth and denies it and says, no, 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 we don't have to believe that, that's, uh, that's nonsense, that, uh, throw that out. No, well, then that becomes, that becomes very problematic and uh, raises all kinds of red flags. Uh, it's certainly possible to be saved without knowing all the details, but to deny it after you've had opportunity to believe it, uh, indeed, it is a watershed issue. Pray that God would indeed give us grace to persevere in our confession, the good confession that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great truth of the Scriptures. We thank you that because we partake of flesh and blood, he himself shared in the same, and that through death he delivered us from the power of death and from the power of the devil. We pray, O oh Father, that we may look to him as the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die, so that we might be forgiven and adopted as your children and heirs. And we thank you that he is now a faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with us and help us in our weakness. May we always be eager to go to him in our time of need and find grace to help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.